The British author A.A. Milne once said, Good judgment comes from experience. And experience? Well, that comes from poor judgment. There certainly is much to learn from the mistakes we make. A new book is dedicated to this premise. The book is Oops! 20 Life Lessons from the Fiascos that Shaped America. As the title suggests, it chronicles notable American goofs, miscues, complications, and failures, and tries to distill from them a few takeaway lessons. We're joined today by author Martin J. Smith. Martin J. Smith is a senior editor at West, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, and has won more than 40 newspaper and magazine awards. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Martin Smith. Thanks for having me. What made me want to interview uh, interview you about this book was Fiasco Number Twelve, which which really captured me. It's under the lesson um, that you that you call "Understand the Market." It it sounds like a routine from Saturday Night Live or maybe Second City, but it, but in fact, in 1967, there was a concert tour that took place involving the Monkees and Jimi Hendrix. Please tell us about this. Well, that was one of those classic how-could-this-have-happened moments (laughs) in terms of researching this book. But yeah, it was 1967. It was just a month or so after the Monterey Pop Festival where Jimi Hendrix had electrified the world by lighting his guitar on stage and scorching his name across the American public's consciousness. And at the time, Hendrix was the quintessential starving artist. He was literally suffering from malnutrition not too long before that and um, was looking for some sort of commercial success. Now, on the other side of the coin were the monkeys, who were nothing but a commercial success. Remember, these were called the Prefab Four. They were four actors who were recruited to play musicians on a TV sitcom. And what were they looking for? They were looking for artistic credibility. Somebody got the bright idea. It was Hendrix's promoter who thought, this would be a great pairing. They each get something that the other needs. So let's put them together and put them on the road. And that's what they did. Now, what they overlooked in doing that was the fact that the monkey's audience, which was huge, was primarily made up of 10- and 11-year-old girls and their moms. And here comes Jimi Hendrix with his sort of raw, savage sexuality. It was just a bad mix. <laughs> My producer has a great quote regarding this thing that he heard somewhere that uh, it must have been horrible for Hendrix to have to go ahead of the monkeys. And someone said, yeah, but not as bad as it was for the monkeys to try to follow Hendrix. <laughs> Fair enough. His set usually lasted about 25 minutes. He was booed from the moment he stepped on stage and hit the first note until he left the stage. It lasted for six shows, the last of which he essentially shot the audience the bird and walked off stage. Um, it was just not a, not a good idea from the very start. Yeah, I know, you note in the book that I guess Dick Clark said, well, maybe your, your client ought to get really sick right about now. <laughs> well, you know what they did? They spun it, this is partly due to Dick Clark's genius, they spun it into a positive because... This is how it changed the course of music history. Their, their story for ending the tour was that Hendrix was somehow being picketed by the Daughters of the American Revolution because his act was so salacious. What that did was cement his reputation as a countercultural hero, which is exactly how we remember him today. The, the monkeys were nothing if not you know, mainstream cultural heroes, but Hendrix, that was the starting point of his career as a counterculture hero. Well, I got to say, uh, this book by, by you and Patrick Kiger has some great quotes in it. That chapter has one I especially liked. Mickey Dolan's drummer for the Monkees, once said, We were on TV playing a band, and we wanted to become a band. It's a bit like Leonard Nimoy really becoming a Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I love that. 
Lesson number three in your book is something that I think we should take a look at. It was titled, Beware the Solutions that Create New Problems. You tell the story that surrounds a man whom historian J.R. McNeil wrote, had more influence on the atmosphere than any other single living organism in Earth history. Can we talk about Thomas Midgley Jr. and the work he did with both tetraethyl lead and chlorofluorocarbons? There are, there are two great environmental cataclysms of the 20th century. The first was the decision to put lead in gasoline, and the second was to put CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons, into aerosols and many other everyday products. The same guy was responsible for both of those innovations, and he was a very talented and very well-intentioned chemist. And in the case of the leaded gasoline, all he was trying to do was stop the persistent problem of knocking engines. Engines were getting much more powerful in the 1920s, and to be able to take the horsepower of cars up to a certain level, you needed to overcome the idea that the engine would start knocking. And he found that if you added lead to gasoline, it solved that problem very neatly. A lot of people assume that lead is a naturally occurring part of gasoline. It's not. It was an additive. And the decision of the oil companies to start adding lead to gasoline they knew that this was going to be a problem because what you're doing is putting this very toxic substance in these aerosolizers, which are cars, and spewing it all over the globe. And it was really one of the great environmental cataclysms of the century. The, the other came a few years later when Midgley was simply trying to solve the problem of coming up with a, a refrigerant for home refrigerators that wouldn't explode. They used to use ammonia, and every once in a while it would leak or explode and kill everybody in the house. And he came up with CFCs, which don't react with anything. But that's part of the problem. Once they're released into the environment, they start to drift slowly upward. And once they reach the ozone layer, they react finally with the ozone layer and start destroying it. And that's why we have a huge, huge hole in the ozone today. Yeah, and I think an important lesson in, in, in this, in this, in your, in your lesson number three for all of us is how you reiterate wherein uh, UC professor F. Sherwin Rowland, he first raised this issue of ozone depletion. He was so roundly attacked in the PR campaign that was paid for by Dow Chemical and DuPont, claimed he was a nut, scientific charlatan, environmental extremist. And you quote um, Ann Burford, um, uh, Ronald Reagan's first EPA chief, claiming that Roland was just, uh, was just, his work was that of someone with an anti-industry agenda. Sure. And, you know, you have to admire people like Roland, who did end up winning a Nobel Prize for uh, being the prophet of doom there. Um, but, you know, in, in so many ways, you could argue that Roland and his, his colleagues essentially saved the world, because we're just now starting to deal with this ozone problem that uh, they recognized two decades ago. We're just now starting to see the, the, the effect level off, perhaps, so uh, not, not a moment too soon. Now, some of, the, some of the things that we cover in OOPS are a little more lighthearted. We, for example, have a chapter on the 1955 Dodge La Femme, <laughs> which was Detroit's first effort to market cars to women. Now, imagine 1955, how many women do you think were in the boardroom at Chrysler? Not too many. Not a one. Mm. And it, this, was, this was a bunch of guys in starched white shirts deciding what the woman of 1955 really wanted to drive. And what they came up with was a car that was not only pink on the outside and not only had Heather Rose patterned upholstery, but had a pink dashboard and a pink steering column and pink wheel covers. It came with a matching lipstick case and a matching rain cape. Uh, this was not a car designed for the 1955 woman in reality. It was a car essentially designed for Liberace. You know, all you needed was a chandelier to make this thing work. You know, it was the kitschiest, 
they sold about 200 of them, uh, and they crushed the rest of the many thousands that they made. Destroying the evidence, as it were. As it were. You do have quite a few lighthearted uh, uh, episodes from American history that you list, and, and one we're going to be able to actually play a clip for our listeners for out of lesson number six, where you note how persistence can outweigh talent. And, and before we say too much, I just want to just play an excerpt of the singing of Florence Foster Jenkins. Well, that, that should give our listeners an idea of what kind of diva she was. Everybody today knows the name William Hung, who was the worst singer ever in the history of American Idol. Um, but the, he had a predecessor, and that was Florence Foster Jenkins. Now, she was a society matron. She was an heiress who had inherited a lot of money and decided to use it to realize her life's fantasy of becoming an opera diva. And she sort of blithely overlooked the fact that, that she was tone deaf. She couldn't <laughs> sing a bit. And, but she would still rent ballrooms, and ultimately she rented Carnegie Hall itself to put on these bizarre performances. It was sort of an in-joke among the arts world in the 30s and 40s in Manhattan. Audiences actually applauded uproariously, so she couldn't hear them laughing. You mentioned, too, in the book that she actually would pre-screen people for tickets in her, in her apartment. Well, she was no dummy, that's for sure. In your chapter notes, you, you list a website where readers can actually maybe take a look at the most dramatic footage associated with your book, The Collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Let's talk about that one. You know, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge is, a, is one of the first incidents where having this fiasco preserved on film uh, cemented it forever in the public consciousness. That film clip is still used, and, and most people have seen it. It's the film of the, this improbable bridge. It was a lovely suspension bridge literally doing the Watusi, you know, and then just before it collapsed. And uh, that film clip is used in engineering classes today as an example of, of hubris, of, of people overlooking the lessons of the past and trying to achieve some sort of ideal without really, you know, paying attention to the lessons of the past. In this case, there had been about five major suspension bridge collapses because of wind problems. And this was in the 1920s, when, or uh, this bridge actually opened in the 1940s. Um, and what they were trying to do was build something that was so graceful and so elegant that it met this ideal of perfection. They simply overlooked the fact that something that thin and that graceful and that elegant overlooking a span where the winds sometimes get fairly, fairly high um, is going to create a certain problem. It's like a wing on an airplane. It creates lift underneath the bridge. And um, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge was actually designed by one of the, the same guy that designed this bridge. It had similar problems until they fixed it after the fact. But this one lasted for four months, uh, and four months after it opened, it would, became a magnificent underwater reef. <laughs> you know, also, there was a subplot to all of that. Um, you note that um, this, this design that won, that, that wound up going to the bottom, was a lot cheaper than the other bridge they elected not to build, which engineers said if it had, they'd built that one, it'd still be standing today. Yeah, exactly. This was in the 1940s when it, you know, the, the war was underway, and there was every effort to preserve money for the war effort. 
And, you know, lighter and thinner meant cheaper, which was a good thing, you know, on some levels. But they just simply ignored the lessons of the past that you can't build a suspension bridge in a place like that and, and not expect it to uh, have some problems. And this one certainly did. Well, one fiasco that might resonate today in an era of puzzling intelligence failures where we're also worried about being spied on comes from your lesson number 11, which is that even the brightest minds can be seduced by dubious notions, and you title it the U.S. Psychic Friends Program. <laughs> you talk about that. This is one that you, I just could not believe until we actually researched it and found out that it was true. This was in the early 1970s when the Cold War was still in full swing, and the U.S. intelligence services got, got wind of a videotape of a woman, a Russian woman, who supposedly was working for Soviet military intelligence and using her psychic abilities to pinpoint troop locations and missile sites and submarines and things like that. And this triggered a, a sort of Sputnik-style uh, arms race, a psychic arms race, where the U.S. intelligence services quickly went out and recruited a bunch of people with supposed psychic powers to remotely view things around the globe, such as missile sites and so forth. My favorite part of that story is the guy who claimed to be able to remotely view the documents on Nikita Khrushchev's desk. <laughs> the only problem was he could see the documents, but he couldn't read Russian. <laughs> you know, I remember when this story surfaced, like in the late 70s, I think it was California Magazine had a, uh, a cartoon of some you know, distraught-looking colonel at the Pentagon on the cover saying... The Russians have telekinetically disarmed our missiles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this was a bunch of guys that sat around in a, in a you know, room with government funding, you know, essentially trying to bend spoons with their minds and things like that. It was, it was a really strange episode in American military intelligence. Well, I, I love your, the anecdote you had about what started the Defense Intelligence Agency on this whole wild goose chase. They reported that the Soviet psychic could, from at a distance, separate egg white from the yolk. And I presume that maybe that made the Pentagon worry that the USSR had a critical advantage in baking meringue pies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just as, an, as, as a postscript to that, that hit the news. And when the psychics were sometimes not performing up to snuff... They offer the excuse, as psychics do, well, there was, we were around a lot of people that were skeptical and we can't perform. So I know a wag uh, pointed out that then we could then counter this Russian effort to psychically disarm our mi missiles by hiring people to be skeptical about the whole notion. <laughs> you know, it's just one government program after another. That's great. <laughs> There's one lesson in your book uh, that actually kind of bears right here on UC Davis, uh, because a lot of research related to it, I know, was done here. It's your last one in the book. You title it, and the lesson being, Occasionally Look Up From Your Workbench, subtitled The Quixotic Quest for the Flying Car. Uh, Dr. Paul Moeller's had, you know, tons of ink spilled over this and, and how, you know, never seems to abate. Can we talk about flying cars? Sure, absolutely. And I love Paul Moeller, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is a guy who's resilient beyond reason in terms of his quest to build and perfect this device. Um, uh, and I think at, at, West, at uh, Los Angeles Times Magazine, we did a cover story on him a few years ago. He really is a remarkable scientist. Here's the problem. Nobody needs a flying car anymore. You know, the, you know, the concept of the flying car was this classic 1950s popular mechanics um, ideal of wouldn't it be cool to be able to commute hundreds of miles to work and just pull your airplane and rotable car into the garage. And, um, you know, and... Guess what? There's this thing called the Internet. You don't have to be physically in a place anymore to be able to work there. Um, 
the need for the flying car has gone away, and yet there are people like Mueller who persist, and God bless them. I think it's great. Well, i got to tell you that I do have a private pilot's license, and the idea of the average driver taking to the skies just scares the hell out of me. That was another reason that, you know, the infrastructure that would be needed to support a system where people could fly at will is beyond reason. I mean, there's just absolutely no way that the FAA is going to go for, you know, putting another, you know, 25,000 people in the air over, uh, over, you know, Northern California. You have a special bonus chapter. Also, we want to note <laughs> the last item in it captures me. Uh, you note that, uh, that in Japan, at the Tokyo Ice Cream Trade Fair in 2004, some, uh, some bright spark marketed ice cream that had chunks of raw horse meat in it. We call it equine sushi ice cream. <laughs> um, yeah, bad idea. Smack their hands. As far as we know, that has not caught on. No. Well, do you have any uh, just personal favorites you want to, you could close with? Uh, you know, I have to tell you, Cleveland Indians 10-cent beer night is oh, one yes. of my favorites. Oh, yes, yes, please, let's not overlook that. This is one of the worst sports promotions of all time. I mean, I just don't know that anybody's ever going to top this one. <laughs> you know, you have to set the scene in Cle Cleveland in 1974. I mean, the city's river had just caught on fire. Uh, it was such an environmental disaster. Um, not only had the river caught on fire, but the mayor had lit his hair on fire at a ribbon-cutting ceremony when he was using a blowtorch. And that very same mayor's uh, wife had turned down an invitation from Pat Nixon to visit the White House because she didn't want to break her league bowling date. Um, and so Cleveland had a, a fairly serious self-esteem problem back then. And the, the Indians were the perfect embodiment of that. They were drawing about 8,000 fans per game to a 70,000-seat stadium, and they were losing. And uh, they decided they had to do something radical. And the lesson here is that desperation is the cradle of bad ideas. Their idea was, let's back two tanker trucks full of Stroh's beer and park them outside the outfield wall so that the only way to get to the beer, and it cost 10 cents for 10 ounces, the only way to get to it was to actually come down onto the field during the game and walk around the warning track and out to behind the, the gate to get the beer. And so before the, you know, the national anthem, the thing was just out of control. Uh, you know, Billy Martin was the coach of the visiting Texas Rangers, and he flipped everybody off because he was getting booed um, during the national anthem. Um, by the second inning, a uh, guy, this was not the height of streaking, a guy naked, came out of the stands and sprinted from first base to second base and slid in to second base. The crowd went wild. That was followed in the next inning by a guy and his son, both naked, coming out of the stands and running wildly around the outfield. By the seventh inning, the visiting Texas Rangers were surrounded in the outfield by Cleveland Indians fans who had broken up their wooden bench chairs to use as weapons. And the, the Indians actually had to grab their bats and come out and save the visiting team from their fans. That's the part I love. They were rescued by the home team wielding bats. You know, no one was actually killed, which I think is the reason that Cleveland Indians management decided, hey, you know, this was a pretty good idea. You know, we got 25,000 people to this game. Let's have five more. <laughs> and it took Major League Baseball to convince the Indians management, no, this was a bad idea. Don't do that again. Well, as, as you describe it in the book, an absolute Hindenburg of an idea. It was explosive from the very start. Well, we think a lot of people are want to get a copy of Oops! 20 Life Lessons from the Fiascos that Shaped America. We've, we've had a good laugh, and we thank you very much for talking with us about it. And if anybody does want to contribute ideas for future books, they can go to our website at www.oopsbook.com 
and send us an email. Martin J. Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. Douglas Everett, this is Radio Parallaxed.